An important characteristic of Bible prophecy is its dual nature. You see, many prophecies have both an immediate and a future fulfillment embedded in the very same passage. One example are the prophecies that speak of the coming of the Messiah. Jesus comes twice, we know that. He came in first century Judea to save us. He comes again in the future to rule and reign. These two comings are separated by at least 2,000 years. And yet many of the biblical passages included elements of both comings in the very same prophecy. Luke chapter 4 is a great example. You remember in the synagogue that day in Nazareth, Jesus opened the scroll. He turned to an Old Testament description of his ministry. The scroll opened to Isaiah chapter 61, and he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But if you're a student of the New Testament, you remember Jesus stopped before he read that last line. The day of vengeance of our God. You see, he read the part of the passage describing his first coming, but he stopped in the mid-sentence because he knew that the next phrase was referring not to his first coming, but to his second coming. Jesus realized that there were two events separated by many years, intertwined in the very same prophecy. And this is the case with many biblical prophecies. In addition to two comings of Christ, the Bible also speaks of two forerunners, two destructions of Jerusalem, two regatherings of the Jews to their ancient homeland. Teachers of Bible prophecy speak of this scriptural tendency as the law of double reference. Let me explain it this way. I have a hammock that I like to take out into my backyard and look up into the tops of the trees. From, the, from under the tree where I place my hammock, gazing up upwards into the tree, you lose perspective, your depth perception. Limbs that are separated by 10, maybe 20 feet appear as if they're stacked on top of each other. All you see is a maze of crisscross leaves and limbs. And this is what it's like to study Bible prophecy. You see, the Old Testament prophets were given glimpses into the future, but it was as if they were looking, they were up under the tree, looking into the treetops. They saw events, but they found it hard to distinguish if what they were looking at was two similar events or just one event. And if they were looking at two events, they had a difficult time gauging how much distance separated them on the timeline. Is it 10 years? Is it 1,000 years? Is it 2,000 years? And this is the scenario that we have here in Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51. The prophet sees two defeats of the city of Babylon. One was historical. The other is still future. But the details are all intertwined into one prophetic picture. Now remember the context of this passage, these chapters. Jeremiah was a prophet, but not only to the Jews. He was a prophet to all the nations. 
And in chapters 46 to 49, he has uttered God's judgments on the nations surrounding Judah. He's moved now from west to east, from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, and he has declared God's displeasure on all the nations in between. And the sword by which God is going to execute his punishments on the nations of the world is the army of the Babylonians and their leader, Nebuchadnezzar. On several occasions in this book, Jeremiah even refers to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as, quote, the servant of Yahweh. And this was a strange use of the phrase. For usually the servant of Yahweh was a name given to Judah, God's chosen people. Not an idolatrous, pagan people like the Babylonians. But it just goes to prove that God can use anybody. The Babylonians were ruthless and cruel, no doubt. Yet God used them as His sword, as His instrument of judgment. And this also proves that just because God uses you, it doesn't necessarily mean that He approves of who you are or all you do. In these previous four chapters, he uses Babylon to judge the nations, but now he turns around and he judges Babylon. As the old saying goes, what goes around comes around. And in chapters 50 and 51, we see that Babylon is destined to taste of the same medicine that she has dished out. Well, chapter 50 begins. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon And against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. Baal is shamed. Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. Baal and Merodach were the chief gods, the idols of the ancient Babylonians. Baal was the god of the wind and the storm. Merodach, known in secular history as Marduk, was the solar calf, the bull calf of the sun god. It's interesting the term idols in verse 2 is not the normal Hebrew word for idol. This word means logs, blocks, shapeless things. The rabbis rendered it things of dung. The idols of the Babylonians, the idols that they worshipped and revered, We're nothing but just shapeless blocks, nothing but just sticks and stones, and they're about to be shattered into a thousand pieces. Verse 3, For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. Now before we go further, let me provide for you a little background on the city of Babel. One of the ways of looking at your Bible is to view it as a tale of two cities. You see, the Bible chronicles the story of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And every kingdom has a capital city. These two kingdoms are no exception. In the Old Testament, God's headquarters on the earth was the city of Jerusalem, whereas Satan also had a headquarters the city of Babel. The founder of Babylon was a man named Nimrod. Nimrod was an expert archer. He taught men how to hunt and therefore fend for themselves. He gave them power over nature and animals and encouraged them to rebel against God. 
Nimrod led the very first organized revolt against God. The Lord had told mankind to scatter and to multiply. Instead, under Nimrod's influence, the people of the earth came together at Babel and they built a tall tower. The Tower of Babel served several purposes. First, it memorialized Nimrod's perceived greatness. Second, the tower became an observatory into the heavens. And at Babel, we find the birth of the occult practice of astrology or the discerning of the future through the stars. And then third, the Bible says that Nimrod constructed it using, and I quote, bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. This word mortar or asphalt can actually be translated pitch. And it's interesting, it is the same word used for the waterproofing material used to cover the Ark of Noah and prepare it for its voyage. So, what is Nimrod doing building a waterproof tower in the middle of an arid desert? Obviously, he refused to believe the rainbow and the promise of God that it symbolized. That God would never judge the whole earth with water again. In essence, Nimrod taught the people of the earth that God was their enemy, that he couldn't be trusted, that he was going to flood the earth again. And Nimrod, oh, he would protect them from this big bad God. This is why God had to come down and destroy the tower and confuse the languages of the earth, forcing the people to obey him, to scatter, and to repopulate the planet. And yet Babel remained the seat of Satan, the capital of Satan's kingdom, the hub of heathenism. For the next 2,000 years, Babylon would remain the center and the chief exporter of idolatry and paganism and occult practice. Babylon reached its zenith, its golden age, under the reign of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled from 606 to 562 B.C., And Nebuchadnezzar made Babylon great. Under him, Babel dominated the world commercially and militarily. It was Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple and deported the Jews back to Babylon. The capital of Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely well-fortified city. In fact, it was viewed as impregnable. Babylon was surrounded by two walls. The highest was 311 feet tall, the history tells us. It had 250 watchtowers, some soaring 100 feet above the top of the wall. Babylon's ancient walls were an example of high-rise architecture. And it was a double wall. The largest of these walls was 87 feet thick. You could line 11 cars abreast on top of the wall. Underneath the walls around Babylon flowed the Euphrates River, which supplied the city its water. It was Nebuchadnezzar who built a 700-room palace. It was him who built the famous Hanging Gardens. The Greek historian Herodotus referred to Babylon's gardens as one of the world's seven wonders. You know, this past week, the United States remembered the bombing of Pearl Harbor. As Franklin Roosevelt put it, December 7th, 1941, is a day that will live in infamy. Well, Babylon's Pearl Harbor occurred on October the 12th, 539 B.C. This was the night the Babylonian emperor, 
a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, a man named Belshazzar, decided to throw a party. He invited a thousand guests to his drunken orgy. In fact, you can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar's party was in defiance of the Medes and Persians who were camped just outside the city. Belshazzar partied in the face of danger to show everyone his invincibility. During the drink fest, Belshazzar called for the treasures that his grandpa had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, God's temple, the holy bowls and saucers that had been dedicated to God and used in Jerusalem in the worship of God. He took out these holy bowls and he used them as beer mugs and as shot glasses. He was thumbing his nose in God's face, mocking the one true God. An always dangerous proposition. And that's when, suddenly, a man's hand appeared, writing on the wall. And I love to read Daniel chapter 5, especially from the old King James Version, because it just says it best. In that same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed. Well, it broke up the party. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against the other. And did you catch that phrase? The joints of his loins were loosed. His problem that night wasn't just eating too many prunes. God's judgment scared the stuffing out of the man. Which reminds me of the captain of the British naval vessel. One day his cabin boy came running into his quarters to inform him that there was a Spanish galleon right off the starboard bow. Captain barked his orders, fetch me my red vest and sound the battle stations. A few days later, the boy rushed in again with the message. There were two Spanish ships approaching. This time, the courageous captain shouted again, fetch me my red vest and sound the battle stations. One day, the cabin boy, he asked the captain why he always wore his red vest into battle. The brave captain replied to his admirer, he said, Sonny, I rare." Wear my red vest just in case I sustain a hit in battle. I don't want to start bleeding and my men get discouraged by the blood on my shirt. The next day, the young boy ran into the cabin. He shouted, Captain, Captain, the whole Spanish armada is approaching. To which the captain replied, Fetch my red vest, my brown pants, and man the battle stations. Well, hey, that's what happened to Belshazzar. He needed his brown pants. Daniel was actually called into Belshazzar's party to interpret God's handwriting on the wall. It revealed his judgment of Babylon, that Babylon had been weighed in the balance, had been found lacking, and now her number was up. Meanwhile, outside the city walls, a Persian general, a man named Ugabaru, I love that name, it's just fun to say, He sent a third of his troops upstream to divert the flow of the Euphrates River into a catch basin, into a lake. 
So as the Babylonians in Belshazzar were partying hardy while they were mocking God, the water level in the river kept lowering and lowering and lowering so that by midnight the riverbed was dry, which allowed the Persian army to march under the walls. As it turns out, these impregnable walls didn't keep the enemy out. But they didn't go to the surprise of the Babylonians. The Persians didn't go over the walls. They went under the walls through the dried up riverbed. And therefore, the Persians were able to conquer the city without firing a shot. Today, you can visit the London Museum. And you can see a cylinder known as the Steel of Cyrus. And it contains the Persian king Cyrus's boast of how he was able to humble the city of Babylon and beat her without a battle. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, he records this as well. He says that when King Cyrus did enter Babylon, he was greeted by an old man with a dusty scroll, a man by the name of Daniel, bringing with him the scroll of Isaiah. And it was Daniel who showed King Cyrus how that God had described him in the pages of Isaiah, his career, his methods, even the means of his victory a hundred years before he was even born, a hundred and sixty years before Cyrus would come to power in Babel. King Cyrus was so impressed, he issued a decree allowing all the Jews to return to their land, just as Isaiah had prophesied. He even returned to the Jews those temple treasures. Cyrus went so far as to finance their return from the coffers of the Persian Empire. Cyrus wanted to fulfill God's calling on his life to be God's shepherd and to help regather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so this is why the next few verses tie together the fall of Babylon with the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Verse 4, In those days and at that time, says the Lord, The children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together. With continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds, that is, the religious leaders, the priests and the false prophets, have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All who found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, We have not offended because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. The conquerors knew that they were acting on behalf of God as they had destroyed Jerusalem. And now they encouraged the Jews to head home. He says, Move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like the rams before the flocks. For behold, I will raise and cause to come against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. And they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. And Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage. Because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls. 
God had used Babylon to judge the Jews. But the Babylonians had never bothered to learn the lessons, the reasons for God's judgment. And so they too began to displease the Lord. Rather than understand the sin that brought on the judgment that they executed, they replicated the transgressions of those people they judged. They boasted in their victories. They became haughty and proud. And now God is going to judge them. As a result, a coalition of great nations will gather in the north and will launch an assault against a haughty Babylon. Verse 12. Your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. In other words, Babylon will be utterly destroyed, even made uninhabitable. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at her plagues. Put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, as she has done, so do to her. Literally, what goes around comes around. Now, I hope you recognize from my brief background lesson a few minutes ago that there are some problems here in Jeremiah's account of the fall of the city of Babel. First, he says that as a result of the invasion, she'll no longer be inhabited. Second, we're told here that her walls will be toppled. They'll be thrown down. And the problem is, is that neither of these scenarios happened when the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. The city continued to be inhabited for many, many centuries thereafter. In fact, it served as the capital of Cyrus and the Persian Empire. Even the Greek general, Alexander the Great, 200 years later, made Babylon one of the important cities in his kingdom. And neither did these walls fall as a result of Persia's triumph over Babylon. Remember the invaders, they came under the walls through the dried up riverbed, not over them. See, over the sands of time, the walls have deteriorated and weathered away, but they were never destroyed by an invader. The implication here is that Jeremiah's prophecy against Babylon has a dual fulfillment. Only a portion of this prophecy was accomplished by the Medo-Persian invasion. There are still elements of this prophecy that are unfulfilled and will be fulfilled at some time in the future. Verse 16. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon in his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. It was the Assyrians who were conquered by the Babylonians. 
And now God is going to send an army, this coalition from the north, to defeat Babylon. Verse 19. But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. These were Israel's best pasture lands, the finest grazing. He says, In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. The day is coming when Israel will be forgiven of her sin and will graze in the finest pastures. This is such a wonderful thought. Here we're told that people will try to dig up sins from Israel's past, but they shall not be found. Why? Because what God forgives, He forgets. God not only forgives our sin, He blots it out. When God forgives, it's not only freely, but it's fully. And you can take that to the bank. Go up against the land of Marathaim. This was a name for Babylon. It means double rebellion. That's how God saw Babylon. Against it and against the inhabitants of Pico. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you, A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. All of this is God's judgment, both past and on this future Babylon. He says, how the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. Babylon had been the hammer, but now the hammer's in pieces. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You have been found and also caught. Because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened His armory and has brought out the weapons of His indignation. For this is the work of the Lord of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. I wonder what appears when God opens His armory. It's an interesting thought. When God takes off His gloves, so to speak, when he unleashes the weapons of his indignation. I wonder, what are the weapons of God's anger? Smart bombs? Stealth fighters? Weapons of mass destruction? Maybe even meteorites from heaven? Whatever they are, they will all be targeting Babylon. Verse 26, Come against her from the farthest border, Open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps of ruins, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Babylon's ancient adversaries, the Persians, were Middle Eastern neighbors, not from the farthest borders. Again, I believe this is looking towards something future, perhaps something even more global. He says, slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them! For their day has come, the time of their punishment. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of His temple. Remember, Babylon Babylon had destroyed God's temple. And God will eventually take vengeance on the Babylonians for this atrocity. This was the house of God that they burned to the ground. God remembers, God knows. He says, call together the archers against Babylon, all you who bend the bow, encamp against it all around. Let none of them escape. 
Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done, do to her. For she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. That is the one thing that I hope is never said toward me. Repay him for what he's done. If If that's God's verdict, I'm in trouble. I'm pleading for mercy and for grace. That's what I'm counting on. Not to be paid for what I've done, but to be a recipient of what Christ has done. That's what I'm praying for and hoping for. That's where my faith lies. It's interesting, the Hebrew word bow could literally be translated launcher. The point being, uh, when you read this text, don't rule out modern weaponry. Verse 30. Therefore her young men shall fall into the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off. In that day, says the Lord, behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time that I will punish you. You know, God is always against the haughty, the proud. James 4 verse 6 tells us God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He says, the most proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all around him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. You know, looking at this figuratively, these verses make a powerful point. Babylon has always been a type of the lusts of this world, the the things of this world. And how these lusts, how how the lures of the world can get a hold on us. They can get a vice grip on a person. That's why sin is often called vice Because of the grip it gets upon us. And yet here, Jeremiah says that our Redeemer is strong. Jesus is stronger than the pull of sin. How can you resist sin? Well, you can't on your own. But if you'll come to Jesus, if you'll trust in Him, He becomes a power greater than the power of that temptation. The Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers, and they will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men, and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in her midst, and they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures, and they will be robbed." A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord. No one shall reside there nor son of man dwell in it. Now again, the demise of Sodom was nothing like the fall of Babel. God sent fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah, incinerated those two cities, 
whereas Babylon has declined over centuries. Also, when the Persians conquered Babylon, God used drought, not fire. The riverbed was dried up, no less. All affirming that we have here two destructions that we're seeing, both the ancient destruction of Babylon, but also a future destruction. Actually, Revelation chapter 17 and 18 describe events, still future to us, at the end of the Great Tribulation, prior to Jesus' second coming, a Babylon will be destroyed in the same manner as the demise of Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation 18 verse 15 reads, The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, perhaps radiation, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city, for in one hour... How does something get destroyed in one hour? Such great riches came to nothing. All who traveled by ship stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning. What is like this great city? Notice the phrases, in one hour, destruction comes. The smoke of her burning. Babylon will have a similar fate as Sodom. One day it will go up in smoke and in fire. Perhaps the city will be nuked. Some kind of conflagration will take place. You know, many Bible scholars believe that the future Babylon that gets smoked won't actually be the literal Babylon in Iraq, but it'll be a city that takes the pagan mantle that becomes sort of Satan's headquarters on the earth. Perhaps Rome, maybe even the United States. And yet, I believe it's possible that the historic city of Babylon may yet be rebuilt. It's interesting, before Saddam Hussein was deposed, 62 miles south of Baghdad, he was re-erecting the ancient ruins. Saddam Hussein had already built Nebuchadnezzar's palace. He had built the Marduk Gate. He had even plans to rebuild the Hanging Gardens and the Tower of Babel. It could be that a future leader resumed Saddam's project. And Babylon does one day rise from the ruins. Verse 41 tells us, Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. This sounds future. It sounds global from all the earth. This could be speaking of the ancient coalition of the Medes and Persians and Elamites, but it does sound more global. It sounds like the final showdown at the end of the age. It says, they shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall hide on, ride on horses Set in array like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes 
that he has purposed or proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make them their dwelling place desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cries heard among the nations. Chapter 51. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Lebkamai, a destroying wind. This was a nickname for Babel. And I will send winnowers to Babylon, who shall winnow her and empty her land, literally thresh her out. For in the day of doom, they shall be against her all around. Against her, let the archer bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor. Do not spare her young men. Utterly destroy all her army. Thus the slain shall fall in the streets, in the land of the Chaldeans, and those thrust through in her streets. For Israel is not forgotten, nor Judah by his God. The Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Even though Israel had sinned in the worst way, God had not forgotten or forsaken his people. In fact, he says, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in their iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Notice God is warning those who do business in Babylon to get out of Dodge before judgment falls. He's telling his people to leave Babylon. And on a practical level, this is why it's not really wise to hang out with people who are under God's judgment. When your buddy gets pulled over, if you're with him, there might be trouble for you. If your girlfriend gets busted and you're in the house with her when it happens, there's trouble for you. Here he's saying to the, to the uh, Jews, get out of Babylon. Judgment is coming down. Choose your friends wisely, in other words. Verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Babylon had been a purveyor, a a disseminator of paganism, of, of occult practice. And all the earth has been defiled and deranged because of her. God had used Babylon, but... Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone to his own country. For her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Make the arrows bright. Gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for His plan is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of His temple. Now remember when Belshazzar brought out those temple vessels that night to mock God, God knew. God saw. Now He's taking vengeance for His temple. Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon Make the guards strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done what He spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. 
O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your covetousness. The Lord of hosts has sworn by Himself, Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts. And remember, swarming locusts was another idiom for an invading army. And they shall lift up a shout against you. He has made the earth by His power. God has established the world by His wisdom and stretched out the heaven by His understanding. When He utters His voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries. It's not Mother Nature who causes it to rain and water the earth. It's Father God. Whereas the earth's idols are futile. Everyone is dull-hearted, without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there's no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Idols are made, but God is the maker. Who do you want to trust in? Verse 20, You are my battle axe and weapons of war. For with you I will break the nation in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. With you I will break in pieces the horse and its rider. With you I will break in pieces the chariot and its rider. With you I will break in pieces man and woman. With you I will break in pieces old and young. With you I will break in pieces the young man and the maiden. With you also I will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you I will break in pieces the farmer and his yoke of oxen. And with you I will break in pieces governors and rulers. Wow. Hey, God can pick up the pieces. God can take all the pieces of your broken heart. And if you humble yourself and give them to Him, He can bring healing and help to your life. Or he can shatter into pieces the proud and the haughty. He does both. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you Roll you down from the rocks and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner nor a foundation, a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. Now, a common practice in the Middle East was to build cities from the stones or with the stones from the ruins of other cities. They just go down the way and they grab the stones and bring them up and they use them to build a new city. In fact, Modern Baghdad was actually built from the borrowed stones from ancient Babylon, 50 miles south. The rubble of ancient Babylon was actually used in the construction of several other cities. And yet here, Jeremiah speaks of a future fulfillment where the city will be so decimated that there'll be nothing left that they would want to use in new construction. Again, this is a Two judgments of Babylon that we have here in this passage. One in the historical, one still future. Verse 27. 
Set up a banner in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations against her. Call the kingdoms together against her. Ararat and Mini and Ashkenaz. Appoint a general against her. Cause the horses to come up like the bristling locusts. Prepare against her the nations with the kings of the Medes, its governors and all its rulers, all the land of his dominion. And the land will tremble in sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They have remained in their strongholds. Their might has failed. They became like women. In other words, they became scared. They became frightened. Only in modern times are women sent into combat. In antiquity, girls were raised to be civil, to be gentle. It was the men that were sent out to fight. Today, that is changing. And I don't think it bodes well for either gender. What does it say about the men who won't fight? What does it say about the women who will? I mean, women need to be the fairer sex. Women need to uh, be sheltered from the horrors and ravages of war. The fact that today we're sending women into combat, I think we've lost our minds. It's not that they're not capable. Of course, women are capable of doing anything that a man might do. But is it preferred? Is it something they would enjoy? Where are the men? Why don't the men rise up and want to take care of their wives and their daughters? And make life easier for them, not harder for them. This is the attitude we should be taking. He says, they have burned her dwelling places. The bars of her gate are broken. The Greek historian Herodotus says that the night Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, the gates of the city were not broken. In fact, they were left open, unlocked. We don't know how that happened. Either the gatekeepers were bribed, or maybe a special ops team unlocked them. Or it could have been divine intervention. But the bars were unlocked. The fact, though, that Jeremiah here speaks of the bars being broken obviously speaks of a still future invasion. Verse 31. One runner will run to meet another, and one messenger to meet another, to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on all sides. The passages are blocked, the reeds they have burned with fire, and the men of war terrified. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it's time to thresh her. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest will come. And here the Jew in Zion speaks. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Want to know where the phrase chewed up and spit out comes from? Let the violence done to me in my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitants of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Jerusalem will say, therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up your sea and make your springs dry. And that is exactly how ancient Babylon was conquered. Her springs or, or the river was dried up so that the army could march in under the walls. He says, Babylon shall become a heap, 
a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions' whelps. In their excitement, I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord. And it's as if the Lord is actually looking into Belshazzar's palace. History tells us that the Persian invaders poured into the city through the dried up riverbed while Belshazzar feasted and got drunk. And again, what we're seeing here are two invasions, but, but the prophet is seeing them lying under the tree, the tree. He's looking up into the limbs. And so he sees these two invasions, but the details are all kind of intertwined with each other, and only time and the Holy Spirit sorts things out. He sees the destruction of Babylon. That's what he sees, and that's what he records. And it's up to us now to discern the two destructions and the time frame between them. Verse 40. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. Oh, how Shishak, which was a Hebrew code name for Babylon, is taken. Oh, how the praise of the whole earth is seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its ways. And again, as we've mentioned, a flooding sea is also a Hebrew idiom for an invading army. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. I will punish Baal in Babylon, and I will bring out his mouth what he has swallowed, and the nation shall not stream to him any more. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. The conquering Babylonians had swallowed up the world's riches. But here God promises to retrieve them. He's going to cause Babylon to gag and cough up all that she's taken, all that she had stolen. It's interesting. Read Ezra chapter 1 and you'll learn that King Cyrus's first act was to empty the storehouse of Babylon and restore to the Jews the treasures that Babylon had stolen from their temple. You know, in one sense, Satan has swallowed or stolen treasures from your life. Perhaps talents, maybe time, maybe enthusiasm, maybe optimism. But if we put our trust in Jesus, he promises to retrieve and to restore those, those stolen treasures. Verse 45. My people go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. And lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land. A rumor will come one, one year and after that in another year a rumor will come. And violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Her whole land shall be ashamed and all her slain shall fall in her midst. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, and the plunderer shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. This is similar to Revelation chapter 19. Just after Babylon in Revelation falls, she's burned, an alleluia chorus erupts in heaven over the news of the fall of Babylon. We're told as Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. Apparently the future fall of Babylon, 
that we read about in Revelation 17 through 19 will signal God's global judgment, the final judgment. Here we're told, all the earth shall fall. You who have escaped the sword, get away. Do not stand still. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. We are, unash- we are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces. For strangers have come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring judgment on her carved images. And throughout all her land the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon were to mount up to heaven, and though she were to fortify the height of her strength, yet from me plunderers would come to her, says the Lord. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her loud voice. Though her waves roar like great waters and the noise of her voice is uttered because the plunderer comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. You know, sometimes we get, we get a little discouraged when we see injustice in the world. We wonder why God isn't doing anything. Trust me, He can. Trust me, He will. In His time and in His way. Every one of their bows is broken. For the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. And you got to think about this. Jeremiah trumpeting this judgment against Babylon would be like me pronouncing the fall of New York City. At the time, Babylon was at its peak. There were no clues here of any weakness. Yet God was planning. God was plotting. God was planning His payback. He is the God of recompense. God will settle all scores. He will pay back all debts. Each one of us will one day... Get what's coming to us. Did you know that? God is the God of recompense. You're going to get what's coming to you. Either the mercies that you have embraced in Christ Jesus, or if you choose to stand on your own, you'll be paid justice for your own sin. My suggestion is that you take Him up on the mercy and come to Jesus. In verse 57, Jeremiah brings the judgments to a close. And I will make drunk her princes and wise men, her governors, her deputies, and her mighty men. And they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain in the nations because of the fire, and they shall be weary. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded, Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Masaiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and Sariah was the quartermaster. This prophecy was actually taken to Babylon and read on the streets in Babylon. It was during an official visit made by Zedekiah around the year 593 B.C., That's 54 years before the actual fall of Babylon when the Medes and Persians invaded and conquered the city. Verse 60. 
So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, can you imagine reading these words on the streets in Babylon? Then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off, so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Even the declaration of this prophecy on the streets and in the courts of Babylon was followed by some drama. Jeremiah told his servant to read the book, tie a stone to it, and then throw it into the middle of the Euphrates. Why? For the Lord says, Babylon shall sink and not rise. 